Not before church started, Sarah told me to keep it short this morning. So I told her I couldn't make any promises, but if I go long, know that it's my fault and not hers. She did everything she could. I want to ask you this morning, what comes to your mind when you hear the word sin? Now, what comes to your mind is going to reveal whether or not you have a biblical view of sin. Or it will reveal that you have a cultural view of sin. The cultural view of sin, it empties sin of its meaning and of its severity. I mean, for instance, how many of us have had a, a dessert that was described as a sinful chocolate decadence? Or seen commercials that describe sweets as being sinfully delicious. Instead of seeing sin as something that is altogether evil, that destroys homes and lives, our culture sees it as something that is just an indulgence. It's something we know we probably shouldn't do, but it's so good we're going to anyway. Now we may regret it tomorrow, but right now we're going to enjoy it. And what this really means is that sin is no big deal. Where culture trivializes sin, Scripture does not. What does Scripture say about sin? Well, open your Bibles to Romans 6 and 23, and we're going to answer that. I'm going to get a stand when you find the passage to honor the reading of God's Word. Romans 6 and 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. title of the message this morning is the sinfulness of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, today we come with a desire to learn from you. Lord, we have opened your word. We have seen what it has to say, but Lord, we need your spirit to really take it and apply it to our lives. Lord, our culture does not take sin seriously. Our culture does not tremble at your word and what it says about sin and its consequences. But as believers in Jesus Christ, Father, we must. We cannot let the culture inform our view of sin. We must see it as you see it. Lord, today as we open all that you have and we try to draw out some of what the Bible tells us about sin and its severity, God, let us as believers take it to heart. Help us not to trivialize it, not to see it as an indulgence that we shouldn't, but we're going to anyway. Help us, God, to to feel the weight of what your word says. Lord, if there are people that are here today and, and Lord, they've never trusted in Jesus for their salvation, then let them feel the weight of this passage as well. Let them understand, Father, that sin is sin, whether, whether we like it or whether we don't, that sin is sin, whether our culture accepts it or whether it doesn't. Father, you have spoken on what sin is and what sin is like. And press that into the hearts of those who do not know Jesus Christ and reveal to them today their desperate need for Christ and His salvation. Work in all of our hearts today. And Lord, if there would 
be any believer that has slidden back in their relationship with you. Begin to deal with them about that. And by the end of the service, let them spend that time of response crying out to you, recommitting their life to you, Father. Guide us that we would confess and forsake any sin that's in our lives today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words in your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts, all of our lives, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this passage presents us with a series of choices. Now, we can have the way of life or we can have the way of death. We can have wages that are earned or we can have a gift that is given. And we can have Jesus or we can have sin. Now that last choice, Jesus or sin, that's the most important choice. Because what we choose there determines what we receive in all of the others. If I choose Jesus, I received a gift and I receive life. But if I choose sin, I earn wages and I receive death. I mean, that's why the cultural view of sin is so dangerous. The cultural view of sin trivializes sin to the point that we believe, we begin to believe that we can choose sin and still receive a gift and life. When Scripture says that is simply not the case. Today I'm going to ask four questions, ask and answer four questions about sin. What is sin? How does Scripture describe sin? What are the effects of sin? And then how can I be saved from sin? The answers to these questions are going to reveal the sinfulness or the severity of sin in hopes that we will never trivialize it again. Or if we have never trusted in Jesus Christ, that we would flee to Him for life and salvation. So the first question, what is sin? Before we can know how dangerous sin is, we must know what sin is. And there are two main ideas associated with sin. One is that of missing the mark. Again, think of a marksman shooting at a bullseye and hitting just to the left of it. They've tried to hit dead center, but they, they've just missed a little bit. As try as they might, they just didn't nail it. The other is that of a willing violation of God's standard. Right? Ephesians 2.1 calls that a, a trespass. So what is the standard that we have violated? What is the standard that maybe we've tried to hit, but we've just fallen short of? Well, it is God's law. Scripture says that everyone who commits sin breaks the law, for sin is breaking the law. Now God's law would basically refer to the Ten Commandments. But it would also refer, in a larger sense, to anything God has said to do. So anything in Scripture that God has said, this is what you must do, and when we don't do it, that is a sin. Anything the Bible says that we must not do and we do, that is a sin. That is a violation of God's standard. Right? There are sins of commission. That is when we do what God has said not to do. And there are sins of omission. That's when we don't do what God has said we must do. 
Billy Graham says that sin is doing what God doesn't like. And sin is also not doing what God does like. Sin involves attitudes, motives, priorities, as well as actions. Right? So we can sin with our words. We can sin with our thoughts. We can sin with our attitudes. We can sin by the things that we do. And we can sin by the things that we do not do. In a lot of ways, I guess you could say, sin is just trying to live independent of God. right? Because God in His Word, He has laid out what we are to do and what we are not to do. And so, when I say, well God, I see that you said to do that, but I don't want to do it. What I'm trying to do is live independently of God. I don't need you. I don't submit to your authority. I don't recognize your right to reign in my life. In a similar way, when God has said, do not do this. And I say, well, I see that you've said not to do it, but I really want to do it. Lord, I ought to be able to do anything that I want to do because my one and my wishes, that's what's most important. In all of that, what we're saying to God is, I don't need you. And I don't want you to rule over my life. That is sin. And that reveals the sinfulness, the severity of sin. Well, the second question then, how does Scripture describe sin? When you look at Scripture, you quickly find That God does not describe sin in the way culture describes sin. I've got a list of things you can see on your handout if you're filling out some ways that we're going to look at. There were many more than this. Um, I had to cut it down for what I was afraid would be way too much time. So let's just take a, a few minutes and let's look at some. And this again, not an exhaustive list, but some of what Scripture says about sin. Sin... Is a work of the devil. The Apostle John wrote, He who sins, notice that, is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. Satan is all about sin. He is the original sinner. He is the first one to say, I don't need God to rule over my life. And when we sin, we are doing His work. We are doing His will. We are doing His want in our lives. Bible also says that those who sin are children of the devil. Jesus, now this is Jesus. Jesus said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. The desires of your father... You want to do. When you sin, you're doing His desires. The verse in 1 John said that those who sin are of the devil. And here, Jesus said that those who love doing sin, they do that. They demonstrate that they are children of the devil. Sin is an abominable thing God hates. Proverbs says that the way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. Now, way refers to the sinful way 
the wicked live. It just refers to living in sin. It is an abomination. Now we're familiar with certain things being called abominations in Scripture. But what we have to keep in mind is that that same word is basically used to describe sin in general. As far as God is concerned, a human created in His image that is intended to live for His glory, living a life of sin, it is an abomination. Now when we think of abomination, we should think in part disgusting. We should think in part angering. Right, So sin is an abomination. It is something that is disgusting to God. Something that He hates. So that's sin. Sin is disgraceful. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Many in our day are proud of their sin. Even those that are often ashamed of their sin don't quite understand that sin is disgraceful. It is something that brings disgrace on us, on our homes, on our community, and on our nation. Sin is not anything we should ever be proud of because it is a disgrace. All sin is done against God. David wrote that, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now this, to me, is probably one of the most important verses on sin that we have. Because David wrote this after his sin with Bathsheba. And keep in mind, all that David has done at this point David's sin with Bathsheba started by not going out to war and leading his army as he should have been. And in some ways, by doing that, he sinned against his nation and his soldiers by not being the leader he was supposed to be. Then he saw Bathsheba and she was good looking, so he sent for her and had her brought to him. Now, all my life growing up, I heard Bathsheba get a pretty rough take on how that happened. But keep in mind, David was the king. It wasn't like she was doing anything wrong when he saw her. Bathing on the rooftop, that's what you did. The king sent for her. The king wanted to sleep with her. Now, she may have been a willing participant, I don't know for sure. But even if she was, there is a king, the one in absolute authority, saying, I want to sleep with you. He sins against her by sending for her and putting her in that predicament. When he finds out she's pregnant, he has Joab, the general of his army, send back her husband and tries to convince her husband to go and sleep with his wife so that when the pregnancy began to show, people would say, oh, absolutely, he was here. During this time, that must be his child. But he wouldn't do it. Uriah would not sleep with his wife. So David wrote a letter. And he said, Dear Joab, I need Uriah murdered. So, get the battle going really hot. Put him in the very hot spot. And then let everybody abandon him so that he dies a death. Here, here Uriah, go ahead and take this back to Joab. He sinned against Uriah by not only cheating on his, with his wife, 
but having him carry back his execution order. He sinned against Joab, the army, by forcing him to betray one of his soldiers. And then Uriah was one of David's mighty men. David's special forces soldiers committed to him and he sinned against them. And yet when David wrote this psalm, he said, against you, God, I have sinned. All sin is against God. Always. There is never a sin of omission or commission that we take part in that is not against God. There is never a sin in thought, in speech, in attitude or action that is not against God. The sin that is committed in front of the whole world is against God. And the sin that's committed in the privacy of the home where nobody sees is against God. To truly understand the sinfulness and severity of sin, we must understand that every single sin is an affront, is specifically against God. Sin defiles us. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile you. Pharisees looked at the outward appearance and all the things that you did outwardly and that defiled you. Jesus said, no, defilement comes from the inside. And defilement is what flows out of your life. When we sin, we are never guiltless. When we sin, we are never pure in the process. Sin always defiles. Sin brings God's wrath. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what are these things? Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry. Those are these things. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We don't have time to get into it too much. But empty words, what, what Paul was talking about by being deceived by empty words, are people who say, no, no, that's not sin. No, no, I know the Bible says it's sin, but let me tell you what the Bible really means. Oh, oh, the Bible says that's sin, but, but things have changed now. It's not really a sin in our day. Those are empty words that we should not be deceived by. For sin always brings the wrath of God. And then finally, sin brings separation and opposition. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says to them that once you were alienated and enemies of God. But why were they alienated from God and enemies of God? In your mind, by wicked works. What was it that separated the Colossian people from God? Caused them to be alienated. It was their wicked works. What was it that made them the enemies of God? It was their wicked works. Sin. Sin separates from God always. And sin puts us in opposition to God. Always. Now that's all very different than sinfully delicious, isn't it? And there are two facts about what we've just seen that make it hard for people to accept what the Bible says about sin. 
The first is that what we just looked at, everything we just looked at, it describes my sin as well as your sin. And it's easy for the most part, for most of us, to say, well, yeah, your sin brings separation and opposition. Your sin brings the wrath of God. Your sin defiles you, but my sin... Let me explain why my sin is different. Let me explain why my sin is not that bad. Scripture doesn't make that sort of a distinction. I'm a preacher, pastor, called by God, I believe. And yet all of those things describe my sin just as surely as they describe the hardcore atheist who writes books about hating God. No matter how long you've been a Christian, how much you love God. That's how it describes about your sin as well. It's just as true of your sin. As it is about whoever else we may think of and say, well, they're they're worse. Their sin is worse. Not so much. That can make it hard to accept because it is one thing to say sin. Sin brings the wrath of God. But it's different to say my sin. Brings the wrath of God. My, my child's sin brings the wrath of God. But it is the same across the board. And secondly, what makes it hard is what we just looked at. It describes what we might call small or respectable sins. As well as what we might call bad or shameful sins. Now, we're probably all aware of the fact that we, we have categories of sin. We have the really bad sin. And the really bad sin are are two kind of ways. One, it's the sin other people commit. And then, there are just certain things. Right? And, And those sins, well, they're defiling. They separate. They alienate. They, they're disgraceful. But then my sin and these other smaller sins, they're not quite as bad. The reality is far different. Culture tells us that sin has no impact. Or I'm sorry. Culture tells us that there are some sins that are respectable. Not, they're not even a bad thing. Unless it's done against them. What we might consider the smaller respectable sins might be greed. Right? Because you gotta, you got to make your money. you got to have your stuff. Lying. Right? Because there, there are just times where you just can't tell the truth. Lust. I mean, you just can't always help what goes on in your mind. Pride. I mean, deep down, I, I really am better than a lot of other people. Being judgmental. I mean, if they didn't do that stuff, I, I wouldn't think those thoughts or say those words. Gossip. I wasn't gossiping. I was just saying what I heard. Outbursts of anger. Well, I mean, sometimes I just... As a Ross, sometimes I have problems controlling my anger. Talking bad about people? Well, I mean, it was just Kelly, so it wasn't really that bad. And racism. And the reality is, all of those things are just as much of the devil, signs of being children of the devil, abominable, as defiling, and as against God. It's whatever we might put in the big sin category. Biblical description of sin 
It reveals the sinfulness of sin. So what is sin? We answered that. Sin is a violation of what God has said, not doing what God has said. How does Scripture describe sin in a lot of ways that are pretty harsh and disturbing at times? But what are the effects of sin? I mean, why is sin dangerous to me personally? Another way that Scripture's view of sin is different than the cultural view of sin is the effect it has on our lives. Culture tells us sin has no effect on our lives unless it is specifically against others. Scripture, on the other hand, teaches sin has a dramatic and a negative effect on our lives. Probably the most familiar passage that describes this is Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh of the flesh will reap corruption. But he who sows the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Sowing to the flesh is pretty much the same as choosing sin. Sowing to the Spirit is choosing Jesus. And each of those has a consequence that follows. Those who sow to the flesh reap corruption. Those who sow to the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now we determine what we reap by choosing what we sow. Right? The, the harvest that we pull into our lives is totally up to us. And it is dependent upon what we sow. And, and as with in Romans 6.23, I can't choose sin and expect to receive a gift of life. I cannot sow to the flesh and expect to reap life everlasting. And I should not even expect that. I would be foolish to expect that. I've said before when we talk about that, but, but for those of you that raise a garden, do you plant tomato seeds and then go out angry that it's not growing asparagus? Right? Do, you, do you plant potatoes and then grow out, go out and get angry that no cucumbers are coming up? If you did, your family would be worried about your mental condition, and rightfully so. You grow what you plant, and it's the same in the spiritual realm. What comes in our life, what we reap, is completely dependent on what we sow. Always. Now, what the New King James calls corruption, other translations call destruction, one, death and decay. Now, while clearly that is all bad, it's not very specific. But, Scripture does get specific in some ways that sin affects our lives. But one, and again, this is just a few. I had six originally. Sin sears our conscience. Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now that passage is pretty intense. It talks about demonically inspired false doctrine and people being led astray by it and searing their own conscience. And each of those is significant. Now, demonically inspired false doctrine would be any doctrine that contradicts what we see in Scripture. And there are a lot of ways that demonic doctrine would be seen. But the one that for us today is in regard to sin. 
If you go to Google and you Google is and you pick something a sin and you hit enter, you will get millions of results. And of those millions of results, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them, will be articles telling you why that sin is not a sin. You can take anything the Bible says. You can take the works of the flesh that it says clearly, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is this a sin? Somebody somewhere has an article written explaining why it's not. And not only do they have articles written about why it's not, they come from a variety of sources. Like As you would expect, many of these articles do come from people who are what we might call an atheist. They don't really believe in a God, and so they're trying to convince you that you shouldn't live by an outdated morality written in a book that was thousands of years old. And that's one thing. But you'll also find articles saying something the Bible calls sin, saying it's not a sin, written by the Reverend Dr. So-and-so, pastor of the First Something Church, professor at so-and-so Christian University. There just are people that are professing to be Christians, writing articles, books, blogs, saying something God calls a sin is not a sin. Now, have they received a, a new revelation that needs to be added to Scripture? Absolutely not. What are they doing? They're believing the doctrines of demons. It's exactly what they've done. And they have led them, they have been led astray by it themselves, and they are leading other people astray by it. Then there's the searing of the conscience that comes. By following the doctrines of demons. Now to understand the searing of conscience. We have to understand what a conscience is. From a biblical standpoint. According to Romans 1. 14 and 15. The conscience is something that God has placed within us. To help us know right from wrong. Right? It is something that, that God uses. Inside of us. To convict us of sin and wrong. And then to, to help us stay on doing things. That are right and good. It's just kind of an inherent sense of I know I'm not supposed to do that or I know I should do that. So how does someone sear their conscience? Well, I'm glad you asked. Since the conscience is given by God to help us know right from wrong, it will convict us or condemn us when we do something that is wrong or we're about to do wrong. Have you ever in your life been in a time where you were about to, to do something and within you, Something said, you know, you know that ain't right. You know you shouldn't do that. Or have you ever done something and then immediately you just began to feel guilty by it? I mean, just you knew, you knew it was wrong the moment you did it. Now we call that having a, a guilty conscience, don't we? So how do we sear our conscience? A conscience says... Don't do that. And we say, I'm going to do it anyway. And our conscience said that was wrong. And we say, well, I'm going to keep doing it. 
And we ignore that thing within us that God has placed there to guide us and to put us on the right track. And we just do it over and over and over and over again. And over time, what happens is our conscience begins to, I guess you could almost say, die within us. The very first time, it's really hard to do it because we feel bad and we feel bad afterward. But the next time, we don't feel quite as bad before we do it or quite as bad after we do it. And we go on and on and on until eventually we don't feel anything as we go to do it. And we only feel a little bit guilty after we do it. And then eventually we don't feel anything as we do it. And we don't feel anything after we've done it. The reality is if there is a something the Bible calls a sin that any of us are doing and we don't feel either the, the conviction of the Lord or a guilt sense of guilt within us, we haven't found a loophole that makes it okay. What we've done is we have seared our conscience by giving heed to doctrines of demons. Now, I don't think this happens immediately the first time that we do it. If that was the case, we would all be in a bad place, for I'm sure we have all gone against our conscience at one time or another. Rather, it just happens over time. The more we ignore our God-given conscience as it tries to prevent us from sin, the more we dull that feeling. Until eventually we have killed it within us, we have seared our conscience. That's something sin does. It can kill a part of us that God has given us to lead us to Him, to lead us to do right and good and true things. Sin sears the conscience. But sin also enslaves us. This is so important. Sin always leads to more sin. Always. The more we sin, the more it pulls us in deeper and deeper. And and this is so contrary to culture. Right? Because culture tells us sin is freedom. Right? The ultimate expression of your freedom as an individual, as a sovereign human, it is to do what you want to do without any constraint from parents or religion or anyone else. If you want to be free, you just do what feels good to you. Do what comes naturally to you. Do what you want to do. Scripture says that an evil man or a sinful man is held captives by his own sin. There are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for his lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. Sin promises freedom, but it delivers slavery. Always. Always. Once we begin to act on our sinful nature, we begin to give in to those desires and begin to do those things. Those acts, they become ropes that bind us and enslave us and eventually destroy us. Now, they they become ropes in a variety of ways. But they, they enslave us as ropes because on one hand, they can become a habit. How many of you just habitually do something. Think about your phone, for instance. How many, if you stop 
and there's nobody around, you just reach down and pull out your phone and look at it. I mean, you don't even think I'm going to reach down my phone and look at it. It's just, boom, you've got your phone. It's a, you've ingrained yourself. You've done that so much. It's a habit. And if it's a habit, have you ever tried not to do it? It's hard, isn't it? That's what sin does. We do the same thing over and over and over and over again. It becomes a habit. We kind of do it without even thinking about it. But at the same time, Scripture does say there is pleasure in sin for a season. Isn't there? There, I mean, we wouldn't do it if it didn't feel good in some way to us. Guess what happens? We get to like the feeling. We like the, the release. We like the endorphins it produces. We, it helps us get anger out. It, we begin to like it. We enjoy the feeling. We enjoy what we're doing. And it, I mean, if you don't think it's hard to stop doing what you enjoy doing, just try to go on a diet and cut out your favorite food. Right? It's hard, isn't it? It's difficult to stop what we like to do. The more we do it, the more we like it. The deeper the hold that sin has upon us. It's not freedom. It's slavery every single time. And then finally, sin earns a wage. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says. Every sin makes the person who committed it deserving of death. Every sin. The punishment for sinning against a an infinitely holy, powerful God. It is not merely physical death or spiritual death. It is eternal death. Eternal death is to be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation, what we looked at last week, refers to that as the second death. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. And that is not God giving us anything. That is simply what we earn because of our sin. The, the sinfulness of sin is seen in the effects that it has upon our lives. The destruction, the death, the corruption that it brings to our souls, our spirits, and our lives in general. Which leads us to the last question, for we have all sinned. How can I be saved from sin? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus alone can save us from the wage of sin and the way of death. That comes because of sin. Jesus alone can do this. Because of what Jesus alone. Has done. We talk about what Christ has done. We have to talk about the cross. The suffering and the death. There's one passage in particular that. I go to often to meditate on. To remind me of what Jesus has done for me. It's Isaiah. 53, 4 through 6. It may be hard to read. It's a lot on the screen. But Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, he, he gives us the clearest prophecy 
what Jesus would do as the suffering servant dying for the sins of others. And it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is so much in this passage I'd like to cover that we don't have time for today. But let me encourage you this week. Read Isaiah 52 verse 13 to the end of Isaiah 53 verse 12. To read it slowly. Think deeply about what Jesus has done for you. Today there's only really two truths that we have time to look at. And the first is to notice that Jesus died for our sin. Jesus was smitten. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised. He was whipped. That's what the stripe book calls the stripes. And all of this was done for sin. But not His sin. For there was no sin in Christ. Instead it was for our sin. He was smitten and afflicted in my place. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. He was chastised for my peace. He was whipped for my healing. My iniquity was laid upon Him. All that Jesus suffered, suffered because of me. And all that Jesus suffered, He suffered because of of you. He suffered for us and he suffered because of us. I mean, that is something we really ought to think on often. Everything that happened to him bad, it was because of stuff I have done. And all that was done to him that was bad. He did willingly for me. That is an amazing level of love and concern for another. But secondly, there are results from his suffering. He didn't suffer in vain. He took our griefs and sorrows. Bringing us joy and hope. His suffering brings us peace. His wounding brings us healing. His taking our iniquity enables us to turn, to back, to go the right way. To put this in the context of what we've talked about today, He suffered the work of the devil so that we could become the children of God. He suffered the abominable thing that God hates that we did. So that we could experience God's love and presence in our lives. He took our disgrace so that we could receive God's approval. He took God's wrath against our sins so that we could have God's peace. He took our defilement so that we could have God's righteousness. He was crucified for what enslaves us so that he could set us free. He died for our sin so that we might have eternal life.
all of that was for us to do something in us and through us and for us. But to receive what Jesus died to provide and offers, we must choose Jesus. You must choose Jesus. Choosing Jesus requires us to repent and believe. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. It's a change of mind about God. And that means in part that we understand that God is right about sin. That His standards as revealed in Scripture, they are true and they are righteous and they are binding. We understand that that God, what He has said about our sin and our need for grace and righteousness from Him, that is true. We desperately need that. <clears throat> that is a change of mind about God. But it is also a change of mind about sin. Now, for many people in our day, we have a cultural view of sin. And if we have a cultural view of sin, we have believed that our sin was not a big deal. And we must change our mind about that and accept that what God says about our sin is true. It is my sin. Your sin is an abominable thing that God hates. If we had a cultural view of sin, we're convinced our sin doesn't hurt anyone. It's no one else's business. We have to change our mind about that if we repent and accept that our sin is always against God. And it is God's business and God's right to call us to repent. If we have a cultural view of sin, we probably thought our sin didn't say anything about our character. It's just what we did. We have to change our mind and accept that sin defiles. And that defilement comes from the heart. And Sin is not just what we do, but it's, it's who we are before Christ. That's repentance. If we had a cultural view of sin, we have thought repentant that sin was an issue of freedom. It's just the way we expressed our freedom in life. But to repent, you must change your mind and accept that your sin is an expression of slavery. And it will always be slavery and you can never get out of it on your own. If you have a cultural view of sin, you have thought your sin was the way to live life to the fullest. But you have to change your mind and accept that your sin results in death, spiritual death, corruption and destruction in your life. Repentance results in a change of life because once you've realized that you were wrong, God was right, the natural response it is to turn from sin, to turn to God, seeking to forsake it. Confession is paired with, or repentance is, is paired with confession. Confessing your sin is more than saying, I'm sorry. Confessing your sin is saying the same thing about your sin that God says. And we've seen quite a bit this morning what God says about our sin. To say anything less about our sin is not genuine confession. And it shows a lack of genuine repentance. And we repent and we confess believing in Jesus Christ. You cannot separate repentance and faith without destroying both. We repent because we believe. We believe because we've repented. It's not just a general belief that there is a God out there somewhere. It is a specific belief in Jesus. He died 
on the cross for your sins. You have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You must believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only hope for salvation that you can possibly have. It's huge for us in our day. For we are typically a self-righteous and a self-sufficient generation. And we cannot cling to the cross for salvation and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency at the same time. We must let go of one to grab on to the other. To truly believe on Jesus Christ is to say the only reason I'll be saved from the wrath to come is because of Jesus Christ. Not my goodness, not my family, not my church attendance. Jesus. To repent and believe involves the heart, the mind, and the will. The mind understands the sinfulness of sin and the sacrifice of Jesus. The heart is pricked, crushed because of sin and aches for the forgiveness that Jesus offers. But in the end, the will has the final say. It is the will that makes the decision to reach out and take hold of Jesus, to let go of sin, to let go of self-righteousness, to let go of self-sufficiency and grab hold of the cross. To receive what Jesus died to provide, you must choose Jesus. Let's close our eyes and and bow our heads for just a moment. We're going to pray in just a minute. I want to give you time to respond this morning to what we've talked about. There may well be a weight in our hearts and our minds on what we've talked about this morning. Our natural inclination will be to push back against it. Resist that urge just for a moment. Because I want you to understand that pressure you feel. It is Jesus calling to you to come to Him and to be saved. Jesus loves you. He demonstrated that on the cross by taking all of your sin and your disgrace. And He wants to save you and give you His righteousness and His peace. But you must choose Jesus. You must make the decision to repent and believe. And if you have never called on Jesus to save you, I urge you to do that today. We're going to take a few minutes to pray right now. If you need the salvation that Jesus offers, you're ready to surrender Him as Savior. And Lord, you cry out to Jesus to save you. There are no specific words you have to say, but you could pray something like this. Jesus, I recognize that I've sinned and this sin has earned a wage. I do not want the wage of sin, but I want the life that you give, so I choose you. I turn to you from my sin. I turn to you from myself. I believe you died in my place and rose again. Because of that, I ask you to forgive me. And I surrender my life. Come and be my Savior and Lord right now. If you need to pray a prayer like that, you pray that prayer afterwards. You you pray for God to give you certainty of your salvation. You thank Him for what He has done. We'll take just a moment.